Today's episode is brought to you by FRW Studios, a damn fine design studio as fresh and authentic as the beer you brew. FRW Studios has created killer can designs for dozens of brewers we love, including the Lost Abbey, the Hop Concept, Port Brewing, and so many other craft favorites. Creative director Julie White has happened to design the 15th anniversary Stone Brewings book, as well as over 20 books for the Brewers Association. In fact, the Brewers Association says Julie is authentic, creative, reliable, and hands down one of the best graphic designers they've worked with. So send them your brand and they'll send you back an original design that fits it or takes it to the next level, if that's what you're into. Hop on over to unitedwedrink.com slash FRW Studios to see what the buzz is about. And while you're at it, download FRW's Crash Course in Branding for tips and tricks of the trade. Everyone who downloads the PDF will automatically qualify for a chance to win a custom design for your next project. Now that's something to drink about. You make the beer taste good. FRW Studios makes it look good. The opinions and statements in this podcast do not represent those of the hosts, employers, co-workers, family, or imaginary friends. Now enjoy the show. Happy hour, more like amateur hour. Welcome to United We Drink. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast that has never been listened to by a person in the great state of Wisconsin. Welcome to United We Drink, right here on unitedwedrink.com, as well as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and wherever fine podcasts are found. My name is Mike Urevich, and I really like Wisconsin, and I'm sad that no one has listened to our show from there. Tell a friend in Wisconsin that we love them. I'm joined by two people that I call my co-hosts, my friends, and... Now my groomsmen, Phil Palmasano and Joel Codner. How are you guys? I like cheese. Uh, cheese cuts are good. I mean, we should definitely talk about, maybe it's because we haven't discussed Wisconsin. Maybe we could fix that in a minute or two. And we have some followers in Wisconsin, so. Yeah, so you guys listening. are. Uh, They're probably just busy me. making cheese. Did you see the tweet from Topher Grace the other day when Mike Pence tweeted coming off the airplane, hello, Wisconsin? Topher Grace just retweets him and says, nope. <laughs> I was actually excited because I thought Topher Grace was tweeting to you or us at the show. But I was originally going to say, why would I be looking at tweets from Topher Grace? But I thought you liked the 70s show. I did. But that was also wasn't like, a fan of his venom. I can tell you that much. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. I don't like oh, the '70s yeah. show, and I did not like that. So, I, yeah, I finally did something worth seeing. That was atrocious. Well, thanks everyone who continues to listen to us. Um, we are <laughs> recording very early once again, so I think it's pretty safe to assume we're all drinking coffee right now. Indeed. I think it's a matter of who's drinking the largest cup of coffee at this point in time. I have a pretty traditional-sized cup, but I have my French press right next to me to be able to do my refills, so I have that. But you two both have 
almost comically large cups of coffee. And what you didn't see was how many shots of espresso that went into it before I poured my coffee into it. Oh, Halfway through the show, eyes? I'm going to start twitching. So <laughs> more like black eyes. Phil, you weren't here for the last episode uh, where we talked about own premise. Do you have anything you want to add? Uh, th- th- there's not a ton that I want to add. I, I I think we're going to get into a majority of it. I, first of all, you guys did a great job without me, as always. Of um, course. We're great. I, I mean, I, I have come to expect nothing more or nothing less. <laughs> the only thing that I disagreed, and it's funny going back and listening to it, and I talk to you guys when uh, <laughs> when I'm listening to the old shows, but... I disagreed with a piece of the news and and not disagreeing with where the piece of the news was going. And and the specific piece is the Florida Brewers Guild pitching for self-distribution. I think we're going to get into that in the main topic. So I really don't want to rebuttal too much. So I'm going to sort of tease it and make sure that everybody stays and continues to listen through the news. Because I, I like what the Brewers Guild is doing. I just disagree with the volume size you're such a tease i am take us into the news phil all right cool so uh let's start with uh milwaukee based hey guys from wisconsin milwaukee based sprecher brewing company sold to a milwaukee based investor group this past week and in addition to that constellation uh beverage company uh, had a little bit of extra jingle in their pocket from that sale of Ballast Point a few weeks ago, decided to take a minority stake into Press uh, Sparkling Ciders, which is uh, female-owned, and that is a prerogative or uh, objective of theirs is to back female-owned businesses in 2020 and beyond. Which of these two purchases is more intriguing to you guys? Uh, I mean... I think you kind of know I'm going to say Sprecher because I don't care about the seltzer stuff like like other people do. It's, it, it's completely biased. Uh, so, And Sprecher is actually some beers that I had uh, when I was first getting into uh, the craft beer uh, stuff because they distributed down here to Florida. And... Uh, then they started, uh, they were probably one of the originators of like the hard soda thing because I remember seeing Sprecher hard root beer all over the place for a while. And uh, Phil, we visited one of their tap rooms when we were in Wisconsin before and yes, had did. a number of beers. They had uh, sodas and hard sodas and um, some good food. Uh, it was It was a good time. So yeah, I agree. Uh, this one means a little more to me. The thing in this article that really caught me was that I guess between 2015 and 2018, Sprecher did not report their uh, barrelage to the Brewers Association. But in that that time frame, 2015 to 2018, 2015 they produced over 25,000 barrels of of beer, and in 2018 it was nine. That's such a Jesus. huge decrease. That is crazy. And and I guess uh, like you you see part of the writing on the wall for looking to sell, uh, get some equity in the company. The owner is 73 years old uh, and was still running 
the show there. Like, I'm sure that he's very happy that he can take a step back from the day-to-days of running a brewery that is very stressful. So, I mean, hope, I, I, like they said, they wanted to keep it local, keep it to a local investor. And I think that that's, that's good. And uh, I'll be interested to see how things go from there. I mean, both purchases or, or whatever's are seem generally positive as compared to some others we've heard of. And, you know, I don't have much thoughts on either one, but, you know, I'm not going to begrudge anybody for getting that cash. I'm very curious in the press. Um, it, it just it, not because I'm a seltzer biased individual, but because I'm curious to see why Constellation Constellation's releasing several of their own seltzers this year, and I understand that they're trying to put some focus behind female uh, organizations. <clears throat> but press is something it, it good acquisition because they have chain support already throughout the United States. Places like Target were early adapters for press in particular. I'm really curious to see what they do with the supply chain that is existing. Do they try and align? And as everyone expected Constellation to sort of shift out of beer, and I, I think this is just further example of companies are not necessarily looking at seltzer as beer, right? And, and I think we're starting to see this segment naturally create itself so that Seltzer starts separating itself a little bit more. Um, so I'm really, really curious to see specifically what Constellation's doing within the seltzer category that is uber aggressive right now. I almost sent you guys this yesterday. Did you see what Beer Biz Daily said? I think it was last night about what's a beer and what isn't a beer. No. No. Oh, my God. So Chris Frenari, uh, formerly of Rubound, retweets Scott Metzger from January. These are both on January 13th. Scott Metzger had basically said he was quoting someone at some sort of conference saying, if it comes out of a brewery or goes through a beer distributor, it's a beer. And he quoted that, didn't say who it was, but said it was someone smart who was also super wrong about this. Uh, Chris Fernari retweeted that the same day saying, Jim Cook said the exact same thing at the Beer Biz Daily Summit last year. And then Beer Biz Daily finally responds yesterday saying, it came from me quoting Jim Cook, and it's true. If it's taxed like beer and regulated like a beer and licensed like a beer, it's a goddamn beer, period. Beer Biz Daily, that Harry uh, yeah, Schumacher, yeah. I, uh, <laughs> that, <laughs> I, I understand that type of response. I don't you disagree. Know, if, if the government's looking at it uh, from a tax purpose as a beer, then it, consider it a beer. But at the same time, they don't fall under TTB regulation with label approval. They go through the Department of Agriculture. So it, you're saying the government's speaking out of both sides of their mouth? Yeah. It, it, I, I don't blame a, a seltzer company or anything like this for this. The, the government is really the ones who's kind of confused about all of it. Uh, I, I can't remember who sent me the article, but this was an article from last year that explained how seltzer is beer and not beer at the same time it's pretty much what's it schrodinger's cat of uh alcohol and you have to put beer on the on the label but it is not technically beer and it does not go through label approval this is why boozy can be written on the label for a seltzer a hard seltzer but it can't be for beer because the ttb doesn't regulate their labels it's it's a weird thing and i don't want to be 
either here nor there on it. But I feel like we could go down a massive rabbit hole on this conversation in particular. And since, Mike, you gave me a perfect transition into the next piece of news, which is something that is not beer, we're going to move on. So the <laughs> coronavirus is actually very busy, <laughs> very uh you know, popular right now over, uh, actually across the entire world, uh, travel bans just about everywhere. Some news came out this past week that several states are have some pretty strong Google searches. Hawaii, New Mexico, and Kansas in particular are searching a lot of, uh, one of the top Google search results is beer virus. And South Carolina, Colorado, and Arizona have been seen pretty strongly Googling Corona beer virus. Consolation, again, was approached with this topic. And uh, they said that, you know, Corona sales are fine. It's not, you know, nobody's taking anything out on Corona. It's cute. I get it. Wisconsin's not included in it. So again, we can tie Wisconsin back to this, this news topic, trying to gain that one listener in Wisconsin. What do you guys think about some states searching beer virus did it come to your mind? Because it came to mine. I'll answer that question first. <laughs> I'm always in that sort of joking mindset. So if, if the second I see coronavirus, I'm immediately thinking, you know, corona beer. And I was getting ready to post something about like, I don't, it seemed like it had taken a few days for the internet beer community to actually start making coronavirus jokes and memes because... I was very surprised to have not seen any yet, and maybe I'm just really getting my follows right and, and not following a lot of stupid bullshit anymore, but it seemed like nobody was going to make that joke, and then all of a sudden it exploded, and it was in the news, and there's people Googling it, and people thinking... I mean, my even my wife, she was like, did you see this thing on Facebook? I'm like, no, I'm not on Facebook, but... Uh, some meme where someone filmed their wife like spilling out all the coronas being afraid as if you know they're gonna it's totally fake and i'm trying to tell her that like this is set up no one is actually dumping their coronas no one would film like i would not film her dumping my beer i'd just go what the fuck are you doing so it's the jokes are really stupid too like okay we get it corona corona people are fucking dying not that I'm offended. I don't care either way. But The only thing that I really got out of this that I got a chuckle, I, I think I saw some like of the one of those satire news sites that was like Grupo Modelo uh, pushes to rename coronavirus Bud Light virus or something like that. Uh, I, I thought that that was funny, but yeah, ma- like making jokes about like people dying, like it's taboo. I don't know. I I think Constellation could put a fun spin on this and just pass out um, masks for protection at the same time, um, you know. But <laughs> with a big a, logo right on the front, buy a six pack, get a pack of masks. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is a pack of masks because my wife made me go out and buy them because I'm flying next week. Make sure that you buy the N95 masks. <laughs> yeah, there will be a. Uh link to our Amazon referral page there at the you end go. of the show. <laughs> um, and final piece of news, uh, DeClaw Brewing, Baltimore-based DeClaw Brewing, I should say, will release two beer styles formulated with oat milk instead of lactose, a dairy-based ingredient often used by brewers to impart creaminess in their beer styles, such as milk stouts. 
These two limited release styles in Oat Shake Double IPA, 8.5% ABV, made with Citra and Mosaic hops, will feature a pillowy mouthfeel. And then a Pastry Archie Oat Milk, 8.5% ABV, Imperial Stout with notes of coffee and chocolate. Now that sober January or dry January is over, which one of these are you guys going to run out and get? Because now you can be vegan February. <laughs> get the fuck out. That's what I have to say about this. This is nothing but fucking bullshit spin. Almost every beer out there is vegan. As long as it doesn't have lactose, ice and glass, or you're putting a bunch of fucking dumb shit into your beer, it's vegan. Like, the and this news article reads terribly. Like, they're replacing lactose, a sweetener, with uh, oat milk. Oats. We put oats into tons of beers for the creamy mouthfeel. The, the replacement is not one-to-one on what you're, you're getting. It, this is just such bullshit that most people are not going to understand this. People who are not into brewing and understand uh, the science behind brewing are going to be like, oh, this is great. And DeClaw is capitalizing on that. I mean, I guess more power to them that they can uh, do that. But this is fucking bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I necessarily agree with Mike. I mean, like I always try to say, you know, make what you want, drink what you want. It seems yeah, like they can com- make what they want. Yeah, it, it just seems like they're coming in at another angle of some of these, you know, healthier lifestyle type beers and, and breweries are being a little more informative about what's actually going in the glass. So I look, I don't know what oat milk is. I've never had it. I don't even know if oat has a tit to get milk. So I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm. If you've ever seen, how do you uh, Lewis, not know the anatomy of an oat, Joel? I don't know. I I, I slept through that class at Siebel. Um, <laughs> yeah, I. Who fucking knows? It everything's ridiculous in 2020. But if you go back to uh, Lewis Black's special, Black on Broadway, he talks about all the different types of milk and, uh, like he goes. <laughs> Uh, what was it? Acidophilus milk? Kiss my dick. Uh, and then I kind of think of that every time I hear a new version of milk being put out or used. So I don't know. Like, if people like it and it's it's somewhat healthier or at least goes towards their lifestyle, more power to them. I agree. That, that... I, I'm looking at this website that we pulled the article off of, and it seems like oat milk is a popular thing. Silk is putting something out. Starbucks is starting to use it a little bit more. Going that vegan vegetarian route seems to be the hot thing. I, you know, I mean, or at least on this website, it appears that way. KFC's doing some stuff. You know, I if a brewery wants to try and crack into that and take it one step further by replacing lactose with oat milk, then cool. I to be honest with you, I I would probably try the stout. I'm not a huge fan of cloudy uh, lactose IPAs, but I I would. I'd try the stout and have an open mind to it. And I'm sure there's going to be a clientele. I'm sure you're going to see a retailer jump on, on top of this. So uh, kudos to DeClaw to thinking outside of the um, dairy producing box. I, I only object to the use of the word pillowy. That's my only problem with this. <laughs> Look, and l- let me just clarify this. I'm not hating on DeClaw 
for making vegan friendly beers. Uh, I think that that's that's absolutely fine, and you can you can market them as such. I hate in this article, and this could be the the website spinning this. So whoever's doing the spin, fuck you. Um, but they're saying that you're replacing lactose with oat milk for creaminess, which is a mouthfeel thing, not a flavor. Uh, uh, is and lactose gives sweetness. Don't make sense. They are not anything that doesn't mean anything those are lies and i don't like that that's that's my biggest issue with this you have the final word sir all right (laughs) so heading into our main topic uh we like we said on the last episode we purposely pushed this back because phil couldn't be here for that episode and this is something that phil has a lot of input on uh because this is his day-to-day business is dealing with distribution And in a lot of states, it is mandated of a three-tier system where a supplier, a brewery, has to sell their beer to a distributor who then sells to the stores and the bars and all of that. And uh, this can be quite a contentious thing between brewers and distributors alike on their opinions on how things should work. Um, And we all, I think, have some pretty strong opinions on things. So... I'm going to let Phil kick things off here and go in whatever direction he would like to start things off with uh, because he also teased at something a little earlier. So first of all, if uh, if your background on distribution is a little weak, there is a documentary series, or not series, but movie, um, Beer Wars, that is fantastic. Um, and, and I think it's one that all three of us have watched at some point in time very early on in our careers. Uh, or probably actually when we were in fandom. And um, it does a really good job of explaining the ups and downs of distribution and the general idea of what distribution is and the different arms. So um, when you work for a brewery, you're considered a supplier. The supplier then, in most parts, like Mike just explained, sells to a wholesaler, and then that wholesaler sells to your retailer. And your retailer could be anything from your local convenience store, grocery store, bar. And from there, and, the, and there's some areas that have multiple tiers on inside of that, um, which is another whole other story. But I'm going to start, I, I really would like to start with <clears throat> my discussion from the news topic that you guys talked about on the previous episode with the Florida Brewers Guild going in and pushing for 60,000 barrel uh, breweries that are producing under 60,000 barrels have the ability to self-distribute as long as they're not within a existing contract with a distributor. I love what this does. And and I spent some time on the Florida Brewers Guild board in my, in my past, and we were working on this bill while I was uh, sitting uh, on the board. After seeing what self-distribution can do, I my my main fear is that if you go in unregulated with self-distribution, you you can do some serious damage. I think sixty thousand barrels is is pretty high. I, I think when one thing that we were discussing uh, potentially at some point in time was looking at a, a percentage of a portfolio business for a wholesaler where you couldn't make up more than X amount of percent of sales total. I, I really believe when you look at breweries, there's not a lot of breweries in the state of Florida that produce 60,000 barrels of beer. 
only a handful come to mind. And, and I, I, I truly believe that when you look at a brewery situation, Joel, I'll use, you know, your brewery for an example. Yeah. You want to sell a keg down the street. Do I think you should be able to sell that keg down the street without having to sign your life away in distribution? Absolutely. I do. You also don't produce. I probably, you produce under a thousand barrels a year. I would imagine. It's um, probably around 500. So under a thousand barrels. And so when you look at the volume production and, and some of the production breweries that I, one production brewery, my previous employer was producing under 1500 barrels of beer at that point in time. And could we have benefited from self-distribution? Absolutely. First thing I'll say is I work in the brewery industry. I have zero desire to run a distributorship. And, and I, 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 both of you guys are smiling and looking at me as I'm talking. So I'm really curious. I think it's a really good way for us to sort of start the conversation. Um, and then we can sort of branch off in different areas. What you're saying, you know, in reference to my situation, you know, it's good to recognize that because literally for us, and I don't want to repeat too much from our own premise episode, but you know, we just want to have a few kegs in our immediate area. We're not looking for any sort of world domination. And, you know, I do agree with you on the 60,000 volume because there are some breweries coming out, you know, like we've said in the past, lots of breweries open up with people who aren't necessarily indigenous to the industry or had much experience in it. They think they're just going to open up, you know, 30, 40 barrels and, go statewide immediately and it's like you are getting way in over your head and you know if you're ah, shit if you're producing 20,000 that's a lot to do yourself in self-distribution I mean there is just like to me it doesn't totally make sense um you know for fucking a lot of breweries I, I think it's geared more toward smaller guys like me but at the same time like we're, we're never going to do that kind of fucking volume so you know we just want a few kegs in the market just to let people know we're here so th the volume just doesn't make sense to me we we know that this volume number that is being proposed is meant to be for the biggest of the big um, it, it was always an argument from uh, the distributors in Florida that uh, if they allow self-distribution, then it would allow breweries like Bud, Miller, uh, all of them to just break off from their distributors and just start, start their own around. distributors and put a, 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 a small family-run business out of, out of business. Um, but I think that the... The, the 60,000 barrel cap, along with saying if you're already in a distributing agreement, uh, covers all of that. Like you, you really don't even need that, uh, that 60,000 barrel thing if, uh, if it's already covering the biggest of the big. Now, uh, correct me if I, if I missed it, Phil, but did you say what you think that the, the cap should be around? Because you're saying you think it should be lower. No, I didn't. And, and to be honest with you, I think when you look at a cap of like, and, and it's arbitrary, right? I mean, realistically, yeah. they're they're pitching 60,000 barrels knowing they're probably going to have to come down on that number. But I honestly, if you're producing 10,000 barrels a year, you're still producing a hell of a lot of beer. Um, and, and when you start looking at regional distribution, um, 
most breweries can somewhat fill the pipeline around 10,000 barrels. That's, I mean, think about it. Unless you're getting yeah. some crazy chain play with awesome velocity, I don't, I mean, 10,000 barrels if you're a draft-only brewery or even package selling out of your own premise, 10,000 barrels should be able to do it for you. Yeah. That's uh, it. it. It's an arbitrary number. Yeah, it is. Barrels. Like I, Honestly, I, I, I think the 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 thing that really needs to be looked at is uh the definition of franchise law and and the way that franchise oh, laws for impact sure. um impact suppliers because it, and and I'm not saying that I'm against the franchise law but I do feel that there are some weaknesses there where I can get a divorce from my wife significantly easier than I can separate from my wholesaler yeah that's that's pretty true I, I and if you're not uh, familiar with franchise law, we basically fall under a similar set of guidelines that the auto industry sets under. So it's very challenging for breweries to redefine what the franchise law is. Yeah. I remember having a discussion or jumping into a discussion on Twitter before about franchise law and um, a friend of the show, Brendan Palframan, uh attorney uh was talking about how like you need to negotiate uh around those things put put uh put verbiage in your your agreements that give you some more leverage than what the distributor wants to give you and i mentioned like you try to do that here in florida and they're just going to walk away from the table on you they're going to be like no and he goes well then self-distribute like we can't and he's like oh well, yeah, that sucks. And that's what we're we're hoping can be a first step in getting towards that uh franchise law uh being thing being something to talk about. Um I also like to use a, an example here or I'll back up a second. Self-distribution is not a super easy thing to do once you get even uh to a size of even 2000 barrels. That means you need to have uh, employees who are being your sales reps, being your delivery drivers. You become more of a logistics company, more so than you already are as a brewery. It takes a lot of money, a lot of finance to be able to make something like that happen. So, I mean, while it's easy for someone of Joel's size to be able to go to a a handful of local places because anyone uh, who works for the brewery can just do that and probably... Uh, a day or two a week for a couple hours and just drive around and drop off some kegs. But yeah, once you get to even, like I said, that 2000 barrel thing, it becomes hard financially. And when I see a brewery like Austin Beer Works in Texas, who are uh, self 100% self-distributing through the entire state of Texas, um, it's impressive. Uh, the last number that I have here of their barrelage was in 2016. They did 18,000 barrels that year, all self-distributed. That's impressive. And that, I mean, if you've ever been to uh, Austin Beer Works Brewery, it's impressive. So, I mean, they have they have some funds there. They have uh, created a great brand. They have made money that has been put back into that brewery. They're, they're kind of lucky that they've been able to do all of that with self-distribution um, where not everyone would necessarily be that lucky. 
I'm sure like Phil, the, you were talking about the brewery you were at and that self-distribution would have helped, but it would have probably also hurt a bit too. Yeah, hundred percent. And, and I told you, I work in yeah. the brewery industry. I don't want to. I, I have yeah. zero desire to run a, a, a distributor. And and I think that goes. While everyone can have, everybody has challenges, right? And we're talking yeah. about challenges and relationships. We have challenges internally with our own organization. We have challenges externally. When you look at the wholesaler supplier relationship i it, it very much so for me i look at it as my marriage it's something that i have to continuously work on and i have you know multiple partners across my my territory it just in, in particular and every single every single wholesaler acts differently and so when i go in it's 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 forming that relationship it's building that relationship and there's so much benefit in my mind that the wholesaler networks that I work with bring to the table. There's no way I could be, uh, there's no way I could build a team to be able to supply and stock shelves and deliver beer, deliver cold beer, and consistently take orders the way that some of my wholesaler partners do. I, and, you know, it, it's, I think. Five years ago, six years ago, I might have had a different outlook on distribution, and and I really see the benefit of it as this industry becomes more and more competitive. It allows regulation. I, I think that self-distribution can happen. I think that there needs to be regulation behind it. I think if we are going to do that, we have to register um, pricing with the state. We have to do certain things to make sure that Everyone's on an equal playing field, and right now, a lot of it, one of the largest arguments is, is, well, your brewery isn't on an equal playing field within this wholesaler because the wholesaler wants to put focus on your brewery versus this brewery. I get it, but at the same time, how are you approaching your wholesale network? How are how what are, what benefits are you bringing them? You you may have a smaller brand, that's fine, but what's your plan? And with this industry as stagnant as it is, specifically in the on-premise, tap lines aren't growing the way that breweries are growing right now. We can all agree on that. What are you doing that's different? If you're just showing up as a supplier and just doing the same shit that everybody else is doing, then yeah, you're probably going to get the same attention that everybody else is. If you're thinking outside of the box and you're coming to your wholesaler networks with solution-based answers. That's where you make a difference. If you come to them with chain placements, specifically for the Southeast or in Florida in particular, where we're so chain heavy, that's where it makes a difference. Look at the guys that have been doing this forever. Sam Adams, Sierra Nevada, uh, Lagunitas does a great job. That's, they are coming every year with a different plan than you are, more than likely. Yeah. And, you know, one thing you said in there that definitely hit home is the, the conversations that a supplier needs to have with their wholesaler. It can be frustrating, very, very frustrating. I know that I, I was I was in there at one point with being ops manager um, <clears throat> and it seems like a lot of one way conversations and I wasn't always right and they weren't always right either. And that can be frustrating, but you got to be able to uh, get through that. Like a thing that I think a lot of breweries 
who are in that just doing the same old thing uh, are doing wrong is believing that your distributor is your sales force, is your sales team, that they're not. Like, yes, they are the one, and that becomes then the argument, well, then we can't self-distribute, but they don't go out there and sell sell our brand. Like, yeah, that's a frustrating thing, but you need to be putting in the footwork as well. And they, like, if you look at them as just, as more of, I I don't like the term, but it kind of makes sense, order takers, like, and you go out there, you create your placements, and you let your distributor know what your plans are for trying to get new chain accounts, trying to get a, uh, a a big deal with maybe a sports team stadium theater or something like that. Always have the conversations going on with your suppliers uh, or with your distributors and, and things can be a lot better. And I mean, I know I always, the thing I hated hearing from a distributor was, work with us here, work with us here, work with us here. Can you do this to do us a favor here? Help us out here. And it it sounds frustrating when it's like, you, you want me to inconvenience myself to convenience you. Yes, it's frustrating, but you can usually talk with them unless they're complete dicks or you've been a dick to them to where they don't want to work with you like that. Um, Bingo. And you can, find, you can find a middle ground. Like, I've I've had some rough conversations with uh, brand reps before, but sometimes, like after a little bit, uh, everyone calms down and like, all right, let's let's figure this out, let's work together, and let's find our middle ground. And I'm not I'm not anti distributors. I mean, at all. Um, they can be frustrating, but I do believe that. Uh, self-distribution should be an option for small breweries and then once they get to a point to where they feel like hey uh, they are either happy with that or they get to grow to a size they say we can't take this on anymore then you go into there the the franchise law thing that's a different conversation for a different time and maybe we will get into that but yeah that's what i think about distributors they're frustrating yes but like you said phil it's a relationship you got to work at it I disagree with you that I think they they are an extension of your sales team. At the end of the day, my sales team doesn't carry an iPad and place an order. I, That's true. And yeah. so at, at some point in time, I agree with your statement where you're saying... You but you also said and, an extension of your sales team. They correct. are not your sales team. Not 100%, no. Yes, um, and I, there's too many breweries that think that. It, it. I mean, realistically, let's look at the industry. The wholesale networks hold hundreds of brands even if you're in the smallest house and, and you know we can use like the shelton network is their their catalog is extensive but you look at it specifically that that arm in florida progressive they have so many breweries and they have so many different beers and every brewery is putting out a unique different crazy beer every week and when those sales reps go in uh, who's the specialist? We are. We're, we're the specialist. We From the brewery side, we are the specialist. They are an extension of our sales team because at the end of the day, they have the iPad, they take the order, they place the order. And a majority of the times, it is more efficient, in, in my mind, for the supplier side to manage and work alongside our wholesaler network to make sure that we are pushing each other forward 
they tell us what areas they want us to focus on. We tell them what areas they want us to focus on. And then we go through and, and as a supplier, we'll go through and we'll put targets on certain things that we want to land um, in particular. Working together is the only way that that happens. And and I think if you're looking at them 100%, so I agree with you and disagree with you. If you look at them as a 100% of your sales force, then you're wrong. Yeah. Inve- investing your that's sales what, force. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. If you look at them as an extension of your sales force, 100%, because they can be your largest asset or they can be, you know, a massive roadblock to market. Most of the time, specifically in this temperature, in this climate, a wholesaler is not going to sign you if they're going to be a roadblock. Rarely are we seeing wholesalers just trying to eat up brands like they were 10 years ago or 11 years ago. Um, owning a brand that isn't going to bring anything to market does nothing for the wholesaler. If anything, it probably yeah. gives them more of a headache. Oh, yeah. And Joel. I agree with both of you guys. I think my, <laughs> no, sorry. <laughs> Joe's like taking notes over on the side. But I, I can say I, I do agree that when you look at the ability to self-distribute, and, and I'll use Joel as an example again, small brewery wants to go out there, establish his name, grow his business. If, 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 I, if I'm putting my wholesaler hat on and he comes to me in two years and says, hey, man, I'm, I'm producing 2,500 barrels a year. I'm selling 70% of it through my tasting room. I'm coming to you with a list of permanent accounts of 50 accounts. I have Publix banging down my door. I have Whole Foods banging down my door that wants regional activation. I can't do this anymore. Here's my book of business. I want to strike a deal with you. I don't know of a wholesaler that would say, Joel, you're wrong. No. I, I, and that, I think that's the wholesaler says, hey, thank you. Thank you for growing your business. Thank you for taking the time to grow your business and go from there. Now, in the state of Florida, we can't do that the way that the, the law reads right now. I think both and of you guys I, are making great points, and I agree with a lot of it. I think Mike and I can be sour on distribution at times based on some previous experience we had. And you know, when you're working with a distributor – it's like anything else. It's a relationship and you have to cultivate that relationship. You have to work together. Either side can't just make crazy demands and, and be like dictators in a way. So, And we had some issues with that in the past and it ended up being that roadblock you mentioned, Phil. Um, and it was at a time when brands were getting hoarded. So you know, all these different struggles to deal with. And then you have the brewery expecting the distributor to be the the entire sales force. And it just, it can't work like that, especially now. I mean, we're talking several years ago. It's not any better now. So, you know, and personally, I, I haven't had the greatest experiences. You know, we were really close to signing with a very small distributor that we were really excited about. And it fell through for reasons of like, not being wanted, you know, not wanting to be tied down to the same person forever, um, or, or the same distributor rather, because it's tricky. You know, the concern is like, well, what if they get sold to somebody else and we get dropped or we're not a priority anymore or whatever? You know, there's all these different factors to look at. But I think that the important thing to do, and I, I try to do this with everyone, even if it may seem negative in a sense, I, I consider it realistic to just. Give realistic expectations when you're getting with your potential wholesaler or the wholesaler is getting with a potential brewery. Everyone should be honest and communicating and saying, hey, this is what we really plan to do. Um, you know, 
every every brewery thinks they make the greatest shit in the world. Every distributor is is basically a sales team in a way, and, and they're going to say, "Hey, we're we're the best distributor. You want to sign with us?" So everyone's trying to sell each other, and that's where the bullshit comes in. And everyone needs to offer some really realistic expectations. You know, can you actually produce the amount you're telling the distributor you can produce, or are you just blowing smoke up their ass to be the next hot thing and get out there? You know. Is, is the distributor telling you, oh, we're going to get you everywhere. We're going to get you in Publix. We're going to get you in Whole Foods, and then they can't. You know, what, what relationships do they have with the retailers out there? there? There's so many different things to consider, and in a lot of ways, sometimes it just feels like everyone's bullshitting each other, and that's where the, the failure automatically begins. Yeah, uh, and uh, you said something in there that I really wanted to reply to, but it really gets into the franchise law stuff uh, a bit more, um, but... Yeah, the the fear of like being uh, stuck with a, a distributor because even if you like you said, Joel, is they they sell to another distributor, you don't have really an out there. It you it depends on the wording of your contract. In most cases, uh, you have to sign over to the next place. But if you say no, I don't want to sign then that old distributor can just be like, all right, well, then you're not distribute. We still own your rights and they're not going anywhere. So you're not going to get distributed and you're stuck here. So, uh, or if you pull out, then I think what's, what's Florida's uh, cool off period, two years, if you pull, pull out yourself. Yeah, that's a really gray area. Um, and, and none of us are, attorneys but no. we should probably say um and, and we might be knowledgeable about this stuff but we're, it, it isn't end all be all um no. it, it now we're now you go down that franchise law thing where you're looking at you know oh, okay so my brewery my brewery rights get sold and we've seen that uh, a handful of times in the past few years in florida specifically um and and it happens around the united states all the time and, and Sometimes it plays to your advantage, and and sometimes it doesn't. And and I think the only piece of advice, without going down that franchise whole rabbit, massive mess. Um, and it, and if you have questions, you can hit me up directly. Um, you can uh, DM the show, and and I'll be more than happy to talk to you about MySpace. it. Um, yeah, hit me up on MySpace. <laughs> um, but the uh, the one piece of advice that I could give you, if you're a small brewery and you're you're trying to decide if you should go distribution or not go to distribution, or or hold off and try and sell everything through your tasting room, which is what I would recommend, um, and apparently Mike's dog would recommend. The um, <laughs> I think about your business plan. Like really at the end of the day, where do you want to be? And if you have a massive group of owners or a handful of owners that everybody has different opinions, more than likely I would not make a decision at this point in time. Really be, think about it, take your time. Don't allow production to force you into distribution. Because you've produced too much beer, you don't have to go directly to distribution. Get creative, find ways to sell that product through your tasting room. Really think about it because at at the end of the day, you're making a life decision and you could end up in a position that isn't the best for you or it, 
ends up in a really good position for year one, but when you hit where you think you could be or where you want to be in year five, and let's be realistic about where you think you're going to be, you could be in a worse position. So take your time, think about it. It It's a big decision, you know? I mean, any of us that have been married, engaged, Mike, you're engaged right now, you think about that shit before you actually propose to somebody. Think about it in that light and maybe you'll make a better decision. Yeah, Mike, are you sure you really want to do this? <laughs> yes, I do. My fiance listens to the show. <laughs> um, well, this is, I, I think this was a great uh, topic to talk about, um, especially considering all of that knowledge that you carry, Phil, and experience that you carry with dealing with wholesale networks and things like that. I mean, it it's very impressive to see how far you have come from like day one of getting into this industry from being a, a, a sales rep out on the streets. And now you are running multiple states with multiple distribution networks. It's, it's really impressive because I think of that and I'm like, I couldn't do that at all. So kudos to you for, for how far you've come. Well, I appreciate you stroking my ego. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I think we got to uh, uh, cut this uh, conversation off here for now. But it's a conversation that we can continue to have online. We can talk about this on Twitter. Um, if you want to say something, chime in, uh, hit us up at, uh, at United We Drink on Twitter and we can keep on talking about it there. Um, I think we can go into last calls here. And this is the part of the show where we get to have a little bit of time to voice our opinion on something unopposed, uninterrupted. And I'll start with Joel. So uh, last episode, I had mentioned something about shopping carts and all these like arbitrary rules that people are coming up with now. Here's another one I heard that <laughs> just blows me away. I hear like managers and hiring people who say, oh, someone comes in and they want an application. I go, here you go. And I don't hand them a pen. And they, they basically make an immediate judgment call. Like if this person seeking a job does not have their own pen, don't hire them. And it's like I never carry a pen and I'm not a piece of shit. Like I don't know where these, these rules come from. Like I think these are things that they just hear in like these Tony Robbins wealth management, you know, fucking self-help courses. These, you know, motivate yourself cassettes and bullshit like – if you maybe they should bring their own paper and print out their own application how about that like should they just like i these fucking stupid arbitrary rules like just immediately judging people on one little thing i stick that pen up your ass with my wedding that i have been hard at work planning right now my fiance and i decided we were going to do uh email invitations evites if you will for all of our guests and in researching which like service we should use for that came across so many forum posts with people asking questions about that and the replies were people saying you never use email to send out invitations they must be physical and through snail mail people trying to tell other people 
how to do their wedding, their weddings, without any, like, these people were asking about Evites and people are jumping in saying, you don't do that. Fuck you. This is not your wedding. If you don't have anything to actually help this person answer their questions, stay the fuck out of it. Uh, luckily, we did find Paperless Post, who Phil used for his uh, wedding invites. And uh, it has been really easy and simple. And you can make them look however you want. And we really like the way that ours came out. And I, I just... Going through all this now and seeing how people have so many strong opinions towards how other people do their weddings is fucking scary. Luckily, we haven't had any of our family or friends trying to tell us, oh, you need to do this. If anything, I have friends and family saying, do whatever you want. Don't listen to other people. And it's like, wait, should I not be listening to you too? Uh, but... Stay the fuck out of other people's wedding business. Like, unless they're asking you directly for for a question, and answer that question. Like, fuck. Welcome to wedding invites. You don't need a pen. (laughs) Welcome to wedding planning. Oh, it's so joyous. Now that football season is is over, and things are sad. um, February brings the start of a new. The start of hope, the start of fast, the start of the XFL. Super excited, personally. February 22nd, the Tampa Bay Vipers open up against the Houston Roughnecks. They actually, that's their first home opener game, but first weekend in February. Check it out. I'm looking forward to it. I'm curious to see what this iteration of the XFL will look like in comparison to the other. And I can tell you that I have a small roommate of my own in this household, not my wife, that is very excited about the XFL as well. So that's my last call. Go team. Will Miss Spots talk about the XFL? Uh, Probably not. I mean, it's wrestling based. Kevin doesn't watch other sports except baseball. But Vince McMahon tied to WWE again? Yeah, Vince, Vince McMahon has his hand in it. Oh God, he's he's like almost one hundred percent funding the the thing. Uh, where the previous uh, iteration, he had um, uh, I can't remember the CBS or NBC executive uh, higher up guy that uh, was Moonvez? backing him to what? Les Moonves. Yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, it'll be interesting. They're doing some really cool ideas, especially with the uh, point after. You have an option of a one point, two point, or three point play after a touchdown. That could get really interesting. And they got Vegas behind them this year. Uh, Vegas came out and said that the Tampa Bay Vipers are the New England Patriots of the XFL. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. By the way, really good docuseries on Aaron Hernandez on oh, yeah. Netflix. Oh, yeah holy shit balls we're two episodes in and like it was one o'clock in the morning and dina's like we need to watch more and i'm like this is the way that i need to get you to watch football Hmm. this is the way (laughs) all right so uh thanks everyone for joining us uh we'll be back next week with a mini episode uh and then in two weeks our next main episode we're going to be talking about festivals beer fests yeah uh, in the meantime, follow us on Twitter and 
Instagram and Facebook. We're on Twitter at United We Drink. We're on Instagram at United We Drink Pod. You can subscribe to the show on any of the major podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, wherever fine podcasts are found. Buy a shirt, sticker, button, or uh, anything else over at our web store, unitedwedrink.com slash store. Uh, for everyone here, we'll see you next time. Cheers. Cheers. When 32 ounces of coffee isn't enough.